After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location in Jumonville, Fayette County. In 1754, George Washington will engage in his first military engagement here against the French at Jumonville Glen. The event was controversial in its own time, but recent revelations have once again proven the importance of this moment. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the skirmish or battle at Jumonville Glen is Brian Reedy. Supervisory Park Ranger at Fort Necessity National Battlefield Park. Brian, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Now, you're a second time guest on Battlefield Pennsylvania, but let's maybe remind folks at home about your background. Yeah, um, I've always had a love of history. Uh, began in my youth. Uh, I had parents who were good at nurturing that. Uh, I grew up during the time of the American Bicentennial, so we often made frequent trips to um, battlefields throughout Pennsylvania, Gettysburg, most numerous of those. And in time, that, uh, that interest grew into a, a career. Uh, I started going to uh, college at California University of Pennsylvania, where I have a degree in history. And on weekends, I would volunteer at the local national park. That happened to be Fort Necessity, and that's how I got my foot in the door. Let's talk a little bit about uh, this place in the 1750s. What are the circumstances of colonial America in 1754? By mid-18th century, you have the, the, the two biggest nations, the rivals, um, vying for control of the Ohio River Valley. And in the middle of it is another nation or group of peoples, uh, the American Indians. But the British and the French had uh, colonized North America, and the race was on for the West. Um, the British had been more successful in getting folks here. Uh, by the mid-18th century, their population was about one and a half million was doubling about every 25 years, uh, though they had a problem. They were hemmed in by the mountains. Uh, the French, a little more trouble colonizing. They have about 60,000 inhabitants by mid-18th century, but they have an easier way of traveling. Uh, they have the interior waterways and the Great Lakes, so they have gotten to the lucrative fur trade areas in the upper Great Lakes. And for the American Indians, there were several groups that were living here. Uh, some had migrated here, others had been pushed here. So it was kind of ground zero for those three groups coming to clash here in the Ohio River Valley. What would this place have been like, uh, say, in Williamsburg, in Alexandria, Virginia? Whenever people thought about this particular region, to them, what was it? Uh, for the British, it was very remote. It's like us looking at the moon. Um, but you have folks who are very ambitious and seeing the potential for land sales here, land speculation. Uh, in the late 1740s, uh, there's the Ohio company that's chartered, and their goal is to increase immigration here to the western lands. Um, among the people who um, are involved in that are the Washingtons. 
Um, it's kind of ironic that a lot of Washington's officers in the Virginia Regiment are also holders of, of um, the rights to that, that land. So they're seeing the potential, but it's trying to get out here. Um, the French, they do not see this as very profitable area, but they want to hold on to it because it's a buffer to prevent the British from coming out here. So they need to try to build some series of forts to kind of serve as that and also to gain the alliance of the American Indians. And then obviously it's land that the Indians are living on. Uh, you mentioned Washington. We see him everywhere in these parts today, mm -hmm. statues, images. Uh, who was he and what does he do in the Ohio country before the events we're gonna talk about today? Well, it's a different Washington than most people are used to seeing. Everyone, everyone carries a portrait of Washington with them in their wallet. And it's an older Washington, a president Washington. But at this time, he's a 22-year-old man uh, who's still trying to find his way in the world. Um, 11 years prior to the engagement here, he had lost his father. And with that were opportunities lost. Um, unlike uh, older members of his family, older half-brothers who had the chance for a classical education, that ended for Washington. He would basically be stuck with what we consider a grade school level education. Um, that would come to fight him here at uh, Fort Necessity in the campaign. But um, he's trying to better himself. Uh, he's coming from the middle class of Tidewater, Virginia. Uh, he had hoped to, for a career in the Navy. Well, mom squashed that. Uh, very, very strong personality in his life. And um, he gets involved in surveying. He sees the potential again for land speculation. And he uh, would get a certificate that allowed him to do that at age 16. Um, he would uh, do surveying for the Fairfaxes, so they became very familiar with the Western country itself. By the beginnings of um, the conflict between England and France, he is, um, he asked to, to, to take a letter up to the French. Um, the governor, the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Robert Dinwiddie, is concerned about the French presence here in Western Pennsylvania. So he needs someone to go deliver that letter. Washington's that kid in the classroom that's going, ooh, pick me. So he's an expendable asset. I know that's hard to say for Washington, you know. Uh, yeah, remember, he's just a kid. And there's many like him at this time. So he's ambitious. And he delivers the letter, uh, becomes very familiar with the Western land. He gets to know its people, uh, people like Christopher Gist, uh, the native peoples that were living here, the Indian traders. So he is the, the foremost guy who's knowledgeable in this area. Uh, he's successful in delivering the letter. Um, when he gets back, uh, the governor needs someone to build a military road. So who better to do that than Washington? So that's setting us up for the 1754 campaign. Uh, do you think he was qualified for that initial venture into the Ohio country? And do you think his experience here making him an expert uh, was really something the British were comfortable with? Only It's only a few months. Uh, you need someone with a good constitution, and, and he, he definitely has that. I mean, he's a young guy. He's going to deal with a lot of hardships, um, sleeping out on the cold ground, dealing with snow, rain, all the adversity that weather and elements can provide for you here in the Alleghenies. So he, he has that. He's a very fit individual, a uh, very strong individual in that regard. Um, as far as knowledge, he's still learning, uh, but he does have uh, resources to pull from his older brother, half-brother Lawrence, um, had definitely shared stories of the military from his involvement in the previous war. And as far as we know, he also had some of Lawrence's military books, like Humphrey Bland's treatise on the military and maybe some books on fortifications. So he still has a lot to learn, 
but he certainly is um, not stupid in that regard. So he's, it has, he has some learning to do yet. I'll just put it that way. One of the great things about this national park is that you interpret all sides, British, French, and Indian. Uh, what do we know about the French? Who are they? What are they doing here? Uh, for the French, again, they don't really want control of this area as far as, it's not lucrative to them. Um, but what they begin doing is building forts down from Lake Erie. Uh, Presque Isle is the first of them. It's a major expedition. They send hundreds of men here. So that's how important it is to them. Um, it's, uh, it's a great military feat in that regard when you consider the amount of men they lost to disease and uh, the weather, the elements and so forth, building a portage road and then the series of forts they're hoping to win the race down through the Ohio River Valley. Um, they would not win that race. The Virginians would actually build a fort there uh, where present-day Pittsburgh is. But in April of 1754, the French come down in a large flotilla and would force Trent's company out and then build Fort Duquesne. So the, the French were well positioned. Uh, they're trying to gain the alliance of the American Indians who were very suspicious of the French. Uh, but right now the French are succeeding. So they're in a very good position. Who are the major native players in this story? Well, they have three major native groups. Uh, we have the Shawnee, who are semi-nomadic people who are coming from what we consider Ohio today. Uh, the Iroquois are the big player. Uh, the Seneca and other Western Iroquois are moving to this area as well. And then they have the Lenape, the Delaware, who have been pushed to this area. So those are the three main groups, but this has kind of become a, an area with a lot of different groups coming through here. Cherokee, Catawba from the South, other uh, groups from the west and from the north. So it's kind of a, a melting pot of native groups, a kind of a refugee area as well along the major rivers around Pittsburgh. Now, Washington in 1753, then 54, returns to Virginia. He gets a promotion. You touched on that earlier. What was his new mission at that point? Well, the British um, Dinwiddie had decided it was time to um, build a fort. And he sends out um, Captain Trent and Trent and his men, about 30 to 40 men, would actually uh, be building that fort. And what they needed is a supply road. There were no navigable rivers through the Allegheny Mountains. So Washington's original orders that were given to him were to raise companies to create what was called the Virginia Regiment. Uh, it's kind of a misnomer that we call the, the men that served with Washington as militia. They were actually men who enlisted. Uh, they were promised pay, uniform, and then a carrot on the stick was at 60 acres of land. Uh, Washington described his men as loose idle men, destitute of house and home. So it was not exactly Virginia gentry that are coming along on this expedition. But with 150 men, Washington would set off on the uh, 2nd of April from Alexandria. And they would begin their, their long march. Uh, the heavy road building begins outside of Wills Creek, today Cumberland, Maryland. And maybe they're making progress of two or three miles a day. But um, Washington's goal is to build a military supply road and the kid gets it done. It's one of the things we kind of overlook. Uh, we always want to get to the juicy part of the story, the conflict, the battle, uh, the soldiers, the equipment, but his main mission was to build a road uh, connecting the Potomac River with the Ohio River. Uh, by April, as I mentioned, the British are kicked out of what today is Pittsburgh. Uh, Fort Duquesne is established. Washington's made aware of that while he's at Wills Creek, and he decides, I'm going to continue building this road. So he veers it a little further south to the Ohio Company storehouse at Redstone Old Fort, today Brownsville, Pennsylvania. And that's where his road would eventually lead to. We've talked about uh, Braddock's Road in this program. We've talked about the Forbes Road. 
now Washington's road. Can you maybe talk about what goes into making a road in the 18th century? It's not the road we're used to seeing today. Oh, no, no, we, we take traveling for granted. We kind of, we gripe because we might have to deal with some potholes or traffic or tolls and so forth. Um, uh, yeah, put it in perspective, uh, we can travel easily from this location to Philadelphia in about six hours. Uh, that could be several weeks travel in the 18th century. And you could die along the way. Um, not that travels, travels today is much safer, obviously, um, but it's not, it's not as hazardous as it was for folks in the 18th century. And um, to build these roads, uh, Washington had plenty of tools. That's one thing he didn't lack in his expedition. Uh, but what he started out with are basically traders routes. Um, a gentleman who's often overlooked in this whole expedition, he's mentioned briefly as Christopher Gist. He was an agent with the Ohio Company, and in 1752, he was asked to actually kind of blaze a road, a main road, as a trader's road, and also as a route to get to his settlement called Gist Plantation, uh, which plays a, a major story in this campaign. Uh, we're located about seven miles from that site. It's, uh, it kind of sits between what's today Connellsville, Pennsylvania, and Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And there he had some families, about a, a dozen families living there. So it's one of the first real settlements here in Fayette County. So that trail was blazed. Washington in 54 would widen the road and bring some of the first wagons over the Allegheny Mountains. Now again, most of them were two wheel carts, tumbrils, uh, maybe a few smaller wagons. He had a lot of pack horses, uh, but the men were slugging it out. It took them, you know, maybe make two or three miles a day. Uh, the following year, Braddock would widen it to 12 feet, and he had the same issues, trying to slug through a forest that was uh, virgin timber. Um, it was more open back then, not the undergrowth that we see today uh, when we're seeing a second generation forest here. But um, imagine canopy so thick it actually darkened uh, the forest. There was one section of woods called the Shades of Death near Grantsville, Maryland. It was that dark. Um, you would have thickets of mountain laurel that were like the barbed wire of the 18th century. And these men had to struggle through that. So it's a great accomplishment on Washington's part to have gotten the road as far as he did, to progress as far as he did. You truly take a time to walk through the woods and imagine trying to build a path big enough for a vehicle to travel through. And you understand the hardship and then going up and down mountains and dealing with all the other things that would be involved in it. Did he have Indian allies or guides with him at this time? Uh, Washington was told to befriend the American Indians. Um, the governor of Virginia, Robert Dinwiddie, also asked Washington to send Indians to him. Uh, Dinwiddie had traveled as far as Winchester, Virginia, and was hoping to have a council there and bestow gifts upon those people. Um, the, the natives were a little hesitant to travel that far east. Um, so a lot of the gifts were brought up to Washington. And we know Washington did hold council with the natives at Gifts Plantation. Uh, where he did gift several of them, gave them English names and so forth. So he worked very hard and he took his job seriously in befriending them. And um, they were useful for him early on. Uh, they would definitely get him in trouble here. Um, unfortunately, they would abandon him by the time the battle at Fort Necessity would occur. Uh, who is the Half King? The Half King is a, a major player in the story as well. Um, somewhat of a mystery. There's a, there's a lot that we know and don't know about him. Uh, we believe he's a man in his 50s by this point, um, not a Seneca by birth. Uh, the story is that he actually comes up from the Carolinas. He was born as a, a Catawba, 
And the story that he often would share is as a young man, his village was attacked by the French and their allied Indians. And his father was killed, boiled, and eaten by the French. And he, as a captive, was taken north and eventually adopted by the Seneca. Uh, and they're trained also, uh, educated by the Jesuits. So he always claimed to have a deep hatred for the French for that reason. Um, he's also sent down here to kind of watch over the area as kind of a viceroy. That's how he gets his name, the Half King. Uh, his Indian name was Tenecha Harrison or Tenacrison. Um, I've heard it pronounced several ways, so we'll stick with Half King. That's the easiest. And um, he's not getting a lot of respect. I mean, young people not respecting old people. I mean, yeah, that happens all the time. So he's going to use his, his powers to try to show the people in his village that he is the person to follow. And what better way to do that than to use Washington? Uh, he does kind of tell folks that Washington, I can manipulate the British. And Washington's this young, somewhat gullible, naive individual who, again, is trying to appease those American Indians. And here's, uh, here's the opportunity. He's, he's using Washington to get what he wants. Um, the Native Americans at this time are vast consumers of European goods. And it's to their benefit if they have the two European cousins kind of rivaling, uh, fighting for their friendship. And um, so who's going to give me the better deal? Do I shop at Walmart? or Target, or Target. So um, the French forts, think of them as the stores that they're building. Yes, they're military posts, but they're also an attempt to lure the American Indian to their side with gifts and trade items that are important to their way of life. Uh, I mean, once you establish yourself using uh, needles and fabric and copper pots and muskets, it's hard to go back to an older style of life. So and the Half King's very much aware of that. So he wants to take care of his family and he wants to manipulate the British to show that, yes, I'm a good ally, but I'm, with, I'm the guy in charge. Now, Washington had worked with the Half King in his 1753 mission a year mm -hmm. earlier. Uh, we'll talk about what the Half King does in this particular mm -hmm. campaign. Do you think Washington put too much faith in him or do you think he kept him at a safe distance? I think frustration is probably a better word to describe his relationship early on. I mean, the Half King, has done his history on Washington. He does refer to him as uh, Conicoteresis, the town taker, the town destroyer. I think he's trying to kind of uh, stroke the kid's ego a little bit. Um, that's a term that goes back to Washington's great-grandfather, who was a militia officer who, with troops, attacked Indian villages along the Chesapeake Bay and got the reputation of being the town destroyer. So um, their first initial meeting is good, but as they travel, uh, the half-king uh, kind of falls under the influence of the French. Uh, he does like his, his drink. Uh, Washington's frustrated trying to move along. He wants the half king with him. Um, the half king's kind of persuaded to stay and enjoy the presence and things that the French are giving him. So it's, a, it's kind of a love-hate relationship in the 53 expedition. But Washington realizes he's a very important person to have in the coming campaign. Now, the French are operating out of Fort Duquesne. Do they know what Washington's doing as he's carving his way northward? They are aware that there are British coming. Um, where exactly are those British? They don't know. And that's kind of in the orders that are given to the, uh, the French patrol that's sent out on the 23rd of May from Fort Duquesne uh, to deliver a summons. So they, they know they're coming, they just don't know where. Um, they're not even sure who is coming itself. They're saying, in the, um, the orders itself, it's addressed to the first English officer they encounter. So yes, they know they're coming, but they just don't know where. 
And the French believe that this is their area. They believe the English are trespassing? Oh, most certainly. Um, they take their claim back to La Salle. Um, when he splashed around the Mississippi River, he pretty much said anything that flows in this river belongs to the King of France. And that pretty much takes a third of a continent, just draw a big V over the top of North America. And this, we're on the eastern edge of the French claims. Uh, you can even go east of here, include the Yakagani River, which flows into the Ohio River. But um, the orders that were given to Ensign Joseph Coulon de Villiers-Jumainville pretty much told him to find the British, but do not cross over the ridge that we're on now. Um, east of here, it gets kind of sketchy, and the French, it's kind of hard to prove their claim that that belongs to France, but from here west, definitely. So that's, they, they're trying to find the, the British, and they know they can go at least this far east in the attempts to deliver that summons. Uh, as Washington's making his way northward, does he have any idea that the, the French are on their way? Not until the 27th of May. Uh, that's the first real evidence we have that there's an alarm in, on Washington's part. Um, he, three days prior, had arrived at a site called the Great Meadows, which is seven miles from here. It's a natural clearing. Um, it offered logistical support that he needed. Uh, he had horse and cattle with him. So he needed some place for those animals to graze. It was kind of the gas station of its day. It was only one of two natural clearings on his line of march. And having seen it the year before, he knew it was a good place to get to. Um, he's there on the 27th and word comes to him via the half king and an Indian trader named John Davidson that the French are coming and they're not coming to be nice. So he kind of raises the alarm. Um, he decides to um, build what starts as Fort Necessity. He says with nature's assistance, we've been provided with natural entrenchments. Uh, in the meadow, there are creek beds and he clears out the brush along those creek beds. And uh, if he would be attacked, he's gonna fight from those creek beds. So by, by I'd say midday of the 27th, he knows the French are coming. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, the name Ensign Jumonville. That's going to be an important part of this. Mm -hmm. It's We have to be very clear. Was he given orders to, to fight anyone, or was this a strictly diplomatic mission? His orders, as you read through them, are twofold. One is to deliver a summons, basically saying you are trespassing on French land. We're politely telling you you need to leave. But the other is to reconnoiter. He is told, see what's out there. And that's something that Washington kind of... Um, holds on to as a key reason for his action here at Fort or here at Jamonville Glen. Now, where, where does the half king fall into this? Does he want the French out? Does he want the English to be bolstered? Uh, what's his ultimate goal of bringing Washington to the place we sit now? Well, again, it's to show that he can manipulate the British. And again, he has a deep hatred of the French. And there's some belief that at the um, Half King is actually down at Trent's Fort in April. They're actually hanging the gate when the, the French do arrive. And the, the story is that a French officer insults the Half King. Now, whether it's Jamonville or another gentleman, Laforce, who, who plays a key role in this battle, or another unnamed French officer, we don't know. But um, there, there seems to have been some slight that kind of riles up the Half King to um, find a way to, to get after after the French. Now, when you were on last season, you were with David Preston, also a two-time guest. Mm -hmm. uh, he really stressed that Washington was under the impression uh, that the French were, were hostile at this point because of the capture of 
the fort uh, at what is today Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. uh, what does the half king tell Washington and what does he hope to do by coming to this place? Yeah. Well, Christopher Gist um, makes an appearance and he says uh, there, there's word has come to him that uh, the French are down at Gist Plantation and they're kind of creating a ruckus. They're kind of harassing some of the settlers that are there. Um, uh, some of the Indians are preventing them from causing mischief and so forth. And the key guy in that is La Force, uh, Michael Pippin, as his real name is. And um, so that that's coming to him. Uh, the half king also is telling Washington, remember your job is to protect me. And there's an account which talks about how the Indians believe the French are coming to prevent the Indians from going eastward into the British settlements. And if they're unable to prevent them from doing that, they're told to destroy the Indians, to assassinate them. And the half king, they're coming to kill me and my family. What are you, Washington, going to do about that? Um, so again, Washington's under those orders. I'm here to take care of my native allies. And if necessary, yes, he promises the half king, I will come. If you could tell me where they're at, I will, I will send out men to help. Um, Washington, when he gets word that the, that the French are nearby on the evening of the 27th, actually divides up his army, sends out 75 men to find the French. Um, it's not till later in the evening, uh, about 10 o'clock or so, that word comes that we found where the French are. We found where they're hiding in a low, dark place. And Washington divides his army once again and sets off with those 40 men. Now, where we're sitting now, we're sort of in a hollow. There's, there's, there's high walls to our, our left. There's a steep hill to our right. Mm -hmm. Why would any military force put themselves in such a precarious place? That's a question often asked by our visitors. Um, seems like a stupid place to camp. But the key word is camp. And you had to consider what the weather was like. Uh, we know from both Washington's account uh, and others that it had been he raining heavily on the 27th, especially that night. Um, Jamonville uh, on his march had gotten to this point, uh, was probably seeking shelter. And we have other accounts that talk about how the men built cabins, which are probably simple lean-tos against the rock face that we have here. Uh, there's also a good source of water uh, they're not too far away from the road. They're out of the wind. Uh, it can get very windy up here on top of Chestnut Ridge. So it's a good campsite. Now, is it a good military camp? That's open for debate. Um, did Jamonville take all the uh, precautions that he should have? No, uh, it doesn't sound like he had sentries out. Again, in his defense, we can always say, well, there's no formal war. He's coming as an ambassador. And uh, so he doesn't have to take all the precautions that he should have. So it's important to say he really wasn't looking for a fight or expecting a fight. Again, that's open for debate. Um, he's traveling with 34 heavily armed men. Uh, Washington in his trip the year before had a half dozen. So again, in the French defense, they haven't really coalesced the French alliance or the Indian alliance here in the area. So they're going to travel a little, a little more protection. I'm, I'm trying to, to, to think about why they were doing it that way. But also, um, the, the French could be bullies. Let's just put that out there as well. And we saw that down at the Gist Plantation where they're trying to strong arm everyone, especially their native allies. We're the guys in charge. We're the ones that you need to follow. So they're kind of flexing their, their military muscle a little bit as well. So it's kind of both sides of the story there. Again, controversy is something that is, is not foreign to this event. Uh, can we talk about what Washington does 
when he first comes upon the French in this location. Yeah, the, um, the evening of the 27th, Washington decides to set off with 40 of his men to uh, go to the Half King's camp, uh, referred to as Half King's Rocks, it's about a mile from here. Uh, they describe it as a night that was dark, they got lost often. Um, by the time they arrive, it's nearly dawn. Uh, Washington had lost seven of his men, and uh, with 33 men and about a dozen Indians, and he said several of which had weapons, some were young boys, uh, they decide to strike the French. So he and the Half King, it's not coming to talk, let's have breakfast with the French, we are going to strike the French. And Washington talks about how they divided up, and Washington served in what he called the right wing, and the Indians were sweeping around. Um, who fired the first shot? That's still a mystery. It's open to debate, uh, depending on your loyalties. You're going to say the French did, the British did. Um, but someone fired that shot. And for 10 to 15 minutes, musket balls were flying through here. Um, Indian war whoops, screams, you name it. Uh, Washington said he was in the front of the action, and he was in the area where he sustained the one casualty. There is one British casualty here, but he um, would be victorious. Um, unfortunately, his accounts is very vague. The next day, he begins writing letters to his superior, Robert Dinwiddie. The first letter, um, it's, it's interesting because the first 10 paragraphs, he's basically trying to um, apologize for mishandling what he was, was a complaint. Uh, he felt that he and the other Virginia regiment officers should be paid a higher amount of money. And so he just goes on and on about, I'm sorry this, I'm sorry that, but this is the way it should be done. And then he goes, by the way, we had this little engagement the day before and we were victorious. But he doesn't give a lot of the details that we'd like to see. Um, he writes another letter the same day to Governor Dinwiddie where he says, I have these prisoners, they're coming via um, 20 of my soldiers led by Lieutenant West. And the third letter, uh, he says, now these French guys are gonna tell you a story. Don't believe them. They're gonna basically say that they were an embassy delivering a summons and we ambushed them. A letter that's written a few days after that is to Washington's younger brother, John Augustine, and referred to as Jack and he gives some more detail in the battle. Mostly he's, he's upping the number. Initially it was 10 killed, now he's up to 12 killed. Um, and he says to Jack, you know, I, I heard the bullets whistle by and there's something charming in the sound. Um, that account along with other uh, stories of Fort Necessity would be published during this war in gentlemen's magazines in London and a subscriber is His Majesty King George II who would, who would read that account and say, if he heard him often, he would not think so. Um, George II is the last British monarch to lead troops into battle, so he's no amateur at war, but he is describing Washington as one. How would Washington's letters have gotten into such a public forum like that, if that was just a letter to his brother? Well, we know that after the Battle of Fort Necessity, that um, uh, his journal was captured, was left behind at Fort Necessity. And again, it was not unheard of to publish things that were going on. Um, you know, his first trip up to Fort LaBeouf, uh, the, the journal was cleaned up and published within a matter of days. So um, they were always trying to, to prove that they were right in what they were doing, justifying what they were doing. The fighting doesn't necessarily end with Washington's account. The Half King and his warriors are going to play a big role here. Uh, also with some controversy. So what do they do? Well, it's, it's interesting. We do have two accounts, both British and uh, American Indian, that describe what happened to the French commander. 
uh, Jamonville is wounded in the in the battle. And uh, according to those two accounts from two separate people, uh, two different cultures, um, the half king who's trying to again prove that he is the, the muscle here in the Ohio River Valley uh, goes up to um, Jamonville and says to him in French, Tony pas encore mort mon père. Thou art not yet dead, my father. And apparently um, cleaves off the top of his head with a tomahawk and scalps him. Um, you know, it's basically saying, you know, you're going to insult me? I'm going to get you back. So whether it's Jabonville or it's supposed to be symbolic of the French officer that insulted the, the half king uh, a few months earlier, again, he's trying to prove that he is the guy. Um, we also have an account which talks about how uh, the half king wanted to kill La Force, who was one of the other officers, French officers here, and is protected from that by Washington. So, but yes, it was a um, very messy scene here. It's not just a a simple shooting. There's a lot of pillaging going on. There's men that are probably being put out of their misery by the Indians, um, not killed outright by musket fire. Now we've had some recent discoveries here. That's one of the great things about history is it's it's never it's never history. It's never done. So what's the recent revelation about this battle? Yeah, it truly evolves. Um, you know, in the previous years, um, Dr. David Preston from the Citadel, um, a very active member with the Braddock Road Preservation Association. Uh, was doing research on his book on the Braddock defeat, or Bougeot's victory as he likes to call it. And um, in the archives in Great Britain, he came across uh, a Native American council that happened at, um, today would be Cumberland, Maryland, future Fort Cumberland. And uh, it was conducted by Colonel Innes. Colonel Innes was leading the uh, North, uh, New York Independent Company. They were meant to help reinforce Washington at Fort Necessity. Um, they didn't get it there in time. But now they're starting to construct the fort there. And the, um, the New York Independent Company is kind of interesting because St. Clair describes them as men that look like they were uh, uh, recruited out of Chelsea, the, uh, the pensioners' home. So it's not exactly the best soldiers. But anyway, uh, they hold this council in October of 1754. And uh, in that council, there's a description that uh, Preston found that's quite interesting. And if I have the opportunity, I'd like to just kind of read through it and kind of detail um, highlights some of those details that come out. Um, it starts off by saying in, in the spring, Colonel Washington being up at the large meadows, the great meadows, uh, sent a message to the half king and to us to hasten and come to Winchester and meet with our brother, Governor Dinwiddie. So there's confirmation that the, the Indians are being invited to meet with Governor Dinwiddie in Winchester for a council. Uh, according, in some little time after we set off, we and several young men among us and we were so narrowly watched by the French that immediately upon setting off with our wives and our children, being only able to travel slow, the French set off that party with La Force to bring us back or put us to death. So there we're talking about where the Half King's justification is that they're coming to kill me and my family. Um, they traveling faster than we could, the French got before us, and when they were, went off the road to encamp, we tracked them. So here we're talking about the evening of the 27th, where Jamonville and La Force and the French are down here. Uh, we came up to that place and went to tell Washington where they were. So they and part of the, uh, this is missing, but it says traveling all night, coming close to the place where the French were encamped, we directed Colonel Washington and his men to go up the hill. So Washington talks about how they were at the road and then divide it. So it seems like the Indians are kind of directing this action by saying, if you go up this hill, 
you're going to come to where they're at. Go straight to the French where they are, not above 50 yards, and you'll come into sight of the French camp below them. So it looks like Washington's coming uh, on the rocks just to our, to our uh, left and right here, looking down. And the half king and his warriors went to the left to intercept them. So there looks like the Native Americans, the bulk of them, are going here on the left flank, and they will go that way. And Monica Tutha, another ally, uh, an Oneida Indian, and a young warrior named Cherokee Jack went to the right. So Washington's on the right flank, but he has a little help. He has two Native Americans on his right flank and in the left Washington. Uh, they came near the top of the hill. Colonel Washington begun himself and fired. So it looks like Washington's leading this group and is literally firing the first shot. It's kind of ironic we have that famous quote, a volley fired by a young Virginian in the backwoods of America set the world on fire. He literally could have. Um, and then the French returned two or three fires, as many pieces that would go off, being rainy weather. So there's confirmation that the, it was rainy weather that day. Um, they ran off, uh, Colonel Washington's people being more forward than the rest, and before the company, they unluckily shot their own man. So the lone casualty on the British part is friendly fire. Some Virginian got too far ahead and got shot by one of his own men. Um, a wounded, they also wounded a Frenchman in the cheek. So all that firing going on, they shoot one French guy down here in the cheek. Uh, the French, taken to their heels and running, happened on the way of the half king. So now we have kind of this pinball effect going on. And they take to their heels, as it says, in running, and happened to run the way of the half king and his warriors, and eight of them met their destiny by Indian tomahawks. So the, the half king and the Indians are claiming that they did the majority of the damage here upon which the other remaining survivors turned short and ran the other way. So again, that pinball effect, they're running back up the valley instead of down the valley. And there they meet Moncatutha, and upon calling to them, they observed they were surrounded. So the Moncatutha employs a bit of stratagem by saying, oh, you're surrounded, There's, you know, but it's him and just this kid named Cherokee Jack. Uh, so they surrender. Um, this, the narrative goes on to talk about how Washington's able to save the force from half king who's coming to kill him. But there's no mention of uh, the demise of Jamonville. Um, it does say also in the narrative that a, uh, a Frenchman escapes, but the Indians took care of him. No, they didn't. <laughs> he got away. So you've spent your career studying this event, this place. Uh, what's your reaction whenever you see that for the first time? Oh, it's exciting because it kind of fills some of the gaps. Sometimes it gives you more questions but it's always exciting to see another perspective in this, especially from the natives that were here and how they feel they're in control of the situation. And it always kind of puzzled me when Dinwiddie is justifying to his superiors that um, my troops were supporting the Indians in their attack. So here's kind of that evidence that, yes, we were helping the half king protect his family um, and doing the right thing. Now, as historians, when you get conflicting sources, uh, or sources that may tell different stories. How do you digest that? How do you uh, choose which one would be the more valuable account? Well, the way I interpret it is we tell all the stories, let the visitors decide. Um, we sometimes have to say, we don't know everything. Um, to be honest, there was a 15 minute skirmish here. People died here. That's, that's the facts we know. Uh, where it gets cloudy is again, when people are putting their own spin on it. 
you know, Washington trying to justify his attack, the French trying to show that they are here as ambassadors, the Indians trying to protect their lives, their families. So um, you try not to pick a side. Um, some historians, unfortunately, get caught up in that. And you'll see accounts from various historians who are trying to, because they have, you know, they're Canadian nationality, they want to say, well, Washington was wrong, or the, well, obviously the British accounts want to prove that they were right. So we don't want to get into that mix. It's a, it's a dangerous place to be. Now, could we talk about the aftermath of the battle? Because we have three distinct parties here, the French, the British, and the Indians. Uh, what's their reaction after this event occurs? Well, again, it's a great victory for the Indians, and they're, they're not um, unashamed to go around with the scalps to show that they uh, had done the job here. Um, Monceau eventually makes his way back to Fort Duquesne to tell his account, and Contrecoeur, who's the commander, has to decide how he's going to retaliate. So he begins asking for additional troops. Um, among those coming in is uh, Captain Louis Colon de Villiers. He happens to be the older brother of Ensign Joseph Colon de Villiers-Jumambi. And um, how many troops he has, uh, it's kind of, I was talking with one of my staff members today about that. The French don't do themselves a great service and they're not very exacting in the numbers that they bring with them. But we know that there were several hundred French and Indians who would come after Washington and begin their laborious march uh, after him. Uh, Washington returns to the Great Meadows. Um, he is concerned. He begins building his stockade and his supply hut uh, becomes the, basically the core of Fort Necessity. Uh, he's fortunate that he gets his reinforcements and with the additional troops, he begins building his road westward. So he doesn't linger in the meadow. It's kind of a misnomer. Visitors think that he sat there for a month waiting to get beaten up by the French and Indians. Um, he felt that he had maybe gotten away with it and was pushing westward. By the end of June, word is coming that the French force is on its way. So he begins retreating. Uh, initially, he holds a council of war at Gis Settlement, and he builds a very crude fort there called the Hogpen Fort. Um, our colleagues kind of said, too bad he didn't fight the battle there. You know, you work at Hogpen Fort National Battlefield. But uh, they decide to continue the retreat to get back to the Great Meadows where they're hoping that there's a, a vast amount of supplies, mainly food. Washington's talking about how his men are in a, a starving condition. And um, he arrives there July 1st. There's no additional supplies, no more reinforcements. Uh, the Indian allies are very disappointed with Washington, figuring out why you want to stay here and fight in this, this little fort in the middle of this field. Um, so the Half King and the other Indian allies would abandon Washington. So he has no allies to help him in the coming battle. Um, July 3rd, uh, the Battle of Fort Necessity. But before we get into too much of that, people often say, would you like to have been here for the Jumonville affair? In some respects, yes. But to me, the most interesting moment is actually on the morning of July 3rd, 1754. Uh, that's when de Villiers and his troops stop here. And he looks over the rocks, and from one of the Marines that was here, he, they talk about how they saw the remains of Jamonville and the other members killed. Um, the bodies had been stripped of their clothing and scalped, uh, one body even decapitated with its head mounted on a post. Uh, they would bury what's left, they would say general prayers, and then the, uh, de Villiers would inspire his troops. And I would have liked to have heard that, that speech. You know, What did he say? to the natives, many of which had traveled nearly a thousand miles to, to be with their, their, their French allies, um, to inspire them to continue that seven mile march to Fort Necessity. So that, to me, that would be something worth, worth going back in time to see. 
Um, but the battle at Fort Necessity, midday, the French do arrive. Um, rainy day, eight hour battle, not a good situation for Washington. Um, by eight o'clock, the French are also in a poor way. They don't have the supplies to maintain a long siege. Uh, the Indian allies are getting disheartened. So de Villiers takes a chance. Let's see if this guy wants to give up before I do. And he offers a surrender document. Um, they go back and forth on negotiating it during the ceasefire, but by midnight, Washington would agree to it. And the next day, July 4th, there's the surrender at Fort Necessity. Uh, Washington retires back to Williamsburg where he would write a lengthy account of uh, the campaign and the battle. Um, de Villiers takes possession of the fort, would destroy the fort, and uh, retires back to his, his post in Canada. Uh, but the, the surrender document creates the controversy. Um, written in a bad hand, on wet paper, but twice in there it says, we're here to avenge the death of an ambassador, the assassination of Jumonville. And Washington, in his defense, later claims he didn't understand what he was signing. Um, he was led astray by his interpreter. And that's another controversy as well. Did Washington really understand what he was signing? I like to think he's, he did. Uh, the English copy that uh, exists today, uh, the word assassinate is written out and then it's crossed out as killed. So someone got the hold of that and went, oops, we need to straighten that out. And whether it was done afterwards, well, you know, it's, uh, that's another mystery as well. But um, it certainly is not a very good beginning to Washington's career. Uh, this park is uh, attached to the larger Fort Necessity Battlefield Park. Uh, should people view this uh, individually as separate events or should they group it together? What's the best way to experience it or think of it? They need to see it as part of the larger campaign. Um, there are a few places in American history where you can stand and say that what happened here changed the world. Fifteen minutes here changed the world. Now granted, when someone in their salon in Paris or the coffee house in London is reading about the colonials uh, having a, a skirmish, but what it leads to is a, a larger war, and a war that um, you know, it's fought almost everywhere, with the exception of Antarctica and Australia. Uh, nearly a million people would lose their lives in this war. It is the, the, the great war for empire in the 18th century. Uh, Britain wins, but now with a vast empire, the discoverer takes money to maintain it. And that leads us to the road to the American Revolution. And this is why this site, even though it's a, one of the smallest forts in the National Park Service. It's important because it's down, leading us down that road to the American Revolution, the country. So you need to visit Jamonville and see it as part of that larger campaign and then leading to Braddock's campaign and eventually the victory by Forbes to conquer the Ohio River Valley. So it's all a chain of events and uh, this is where it begins. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. For everybody here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.